Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. We rejoice in our triune God. We rejoice that we can have salvation either though we deserve the absolute opposite. We deserve hell. And yet, because of your love, because of your grace, because of your mercy, you extend to us the opportunity for salvation, and it is all through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to our Savior this morning. Help us, please, to understand, maybe even in a new way, slightly different way, the reality of Christmas. We do sing of it. But we embrace it because it has changed our lives and it will continue to do that for all of eternity. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I recently came across a, an article and, and it outlines some, some tips for holiday eating. If you're like me, I, I like holiday eating. And so I thought, hey, this, this is pretty good. So I checked it out and I thought these are worth sharing. So you don't need to take notes because um, you can just call me later. I'll, I'll let you know about these. But anyway, these are, these are things that are suggested for holiday eating. Do not have a snack before going to a party or Christmas dinner. Don't do that in an effort to try to control your eating. The whole point of going to a Christmas party is to eat other people's food for free. <laughs> Lots of it. So don't snack ahead of time. Another, another tip was, so if it comes with gravy, use it. That's the whole point of gravy. Pour it on. Make a volcano in your mashed potatoes. Fill it with gravy. Eat the volcano. Repeat. Under no circumstances. Under no circumstances should you exercise not between now and New Year's. You can do that in January when you have nothing else to do. This is a time for resting, which you'll need to do after circling the buffet table several times carrying a 10-pound plate of food. If you come across something really good at a buffet table, position yourself near it and don't budge. Have as much as you can before becoming the center of attention. <laughs> Regarding pies, apple, pumpkin, mincemeat, have a slice of each. Or, if you don't like mincemeat, have two apples and one pumpkin. Or two pumpkins and one apple. It doesn't really matter, but always have three pieces of pie. Because when else do you ever get to have more than one piece of pie? The one final tip. If you don't feel almost ill from eating after the meal is done, well, you haven't been paying attention to the previous tips. So reread those and start over. <laughs> now, as much as I really like these ideas, there's a part of me really small part of me that wonders if maybe 
maybe they're not the most prudent way to approach the holiday seasons. Maybe, maybe they're not completely trustworthy. I'm, I'm not really sure about that. So anyway, I'll let you know in January because I'm going to give it a really good try. So <laughs> I'll let you know. But <laughs> the thing is, we always need to be evaluating, right? We need to be evaluating whatever we hear, whatever we read. We need to try to determine whether it's trustworthy. As we turn our hearts and we turn our thoughts now towards Christmas, and we think about the celebration of Jesus' birth, I want us to look at a passage today that, well, honestly, I've never, I've never preached on this passage as part of the Christmas story. I, w- I was thinking about that this week. This is my 20th Christmas here at Red Pine, and I've never preached on this passage. But the more I have studied it, the more I've reflected on it, the more I realize this passage is the Christmas story. And so if you haven't already done so, I hope you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to look at just three verses here, but we're going to see in them, we're going to see three I think very significant points or aspects of the Christmas story that Paul brings out. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I have three points. Number one is this, the reason for Jesus is coming. I, I hope you're with me there. Go down to verse 15. Let me just read that as you follow along. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of of whom I am the foremost. I love this. I love this. Just take a moment and look at that verse. The truth that is trustworthy, the truth that is deserving of full acceptance is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the reason for him coming. Listen to how Matthew Henry, I think so aptly, described this verse in his commentary. He wrote this. He says, Here we have the sum of the whole gospel. It is good news, worthy of all acceptation. And yet, oh, I love this part, yet not too good to be true. For it is a faithful saying. How can the reality, focusing upon this, how can that not just stir our hearts My friends, truly, this is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus, the perfect son, the divine second person of the Trinity, would humble himself and become human. Infinite, eternal God, yet he put himself in the limitation of having a human body. He did that. He came All of that he endured was so that he could then take upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve fully. But he took it on himself. He died on that cross for us. He paid for our sins. And he did all of that so that we might be saved. Yeah, it is. It's the Christmas story. Jesus in, in Luke 19.10, you, you know the passage. This is where he's talking to a wee little man, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And Jesus said to him, so he said to Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Yes, I tell you, it is a trust 
worthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I love what John Calvin, the great theologian and reformer, said about this idea about Christ coming into the world to save sinners. He writes this, he says, Let this preface be to our ears like the sound of a trumpet to proclaim the praises of the grace of Christ. If we just pause right there, that is really well said. The sound of a trumpet. I just love that. To proclaim the praises of the grace of Christ in order that we may believe it with a stronger faith. Let it be to us as a seal to impress on our hearts a firm belief of the forgiveness of sins which otherwise, with difficulty, finds entrance into the hearts of men. That is so well said. I love Christmas just, I love Christmas just as much as you do. I, I love the time with, with family and friends. I, I love the decorations. I, I love the Christmas music. <laughs> I, I love the Christmas food and all that goes with that. I love giving and receiving gifts. I love the focus on the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love the tender thoughts. I don't know if you're like me. I kind of romanticize what happened there all those years ago when he was born. So I, I love that tender, the tender thoughts of Mary and Joseph laying their newborn son in a manger, in a manger full of hay. I love to think of the animals. I'm sure that they were just very calmly resting and watching. Now, I've, seen, I've seen movies with that, so I know that that's how they do that, right? They were behaving themselves well, but I just love the idea of the, the animals, just the stable, and the animals are there, and this miracle is taking place where the Son of God is born. I love to think about the shepherds who were in the fields nearby and the angels came and the angels told them what was going on. And I love the fact that they obeyed the angels. They followed the directions and they went into the city there and they found him. They went in there so that they could worship the Son of God. I love all of those things about Christmas. But it is so much more than just those sentimental feelings that I think that Christmas stirs within us. We, we sing it every year. You know this song, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. The Puritan William Dyer, he said this. I think this is so profound. He said, The Son of God became the Son of Man, that we, the sons of men, might become the sons of God. And all this he did to save the nations. Oh, may we never lose the joy of Christmas, But in the midst of our joy, in the midst of our excitement, in the midst of our happiness, may we never forget the trustworthy saying that the very heart of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world, not just so we could celebrate 
on December 25th, not just so we can open presents with one another, not just so we can meet together at a candlelight service. He came into the world to save sinners. That is the Christmas story. That is the gospel message. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember what this really was? Is a more traditional um, Christmas passage. But remember in Matthew chapter one, Joseph is struggling a little bit here because he found out that Mary, who he was supposed to be married to, found out he was pregnant. She was pregnant. Excuse me. And remember, the angel came to him and said, "Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son." And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. <laughs> that is Christmas. He came to earth. He came to die. He came so that we can live. Look at verse 15 again here, the end part of that. Well, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost, the foremost sinner. Well, what in the world is Paul talking about with that? It seems a little bit odd that he would throw that in there. Um, certainly, he was not saying that he was the most wicked man on the face of the earth at that time. In other places, like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 4, he, he wrote, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. So certainly, he was not just horrible, despicable, the worst man on earth. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he encouraged the Christians, he said, to join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So we know that Paul, it wasn't like he was just this terrible reprobate of a man. So there must have been something else going on here. Well, was it just kind of a feeble attempt at false humility? I don't think so. Not at all. I think that there were two things Two things at play here. First of all, Paul never forgot his life before his salvation. He was a legalistic, self-righteous Pharisee who persecuted and arrested Christians. <laughs> that is until he became one. In fact, he alludes to that. Now, if you just look up back at verse 13 with me, he writes, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul never forgot that. He understood fully his, his salvation and his forgiveness of sins. He understood that he had been made new in Christ Jesus, but I don't think he ever forgot the life that he had lived before that. Secondly, I think that the more Paul grew in his relationship with Christ, the more that he matured in his faith, I think that the more sensitive he became to the sins in his life. This is how Charles Spurgeon describes this in the life of a believer. He says, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. As we draw closer and closer to Christ, the sins that we commit should just grieve our hearts. Yes, we can harden our hearts to sin. Yes, we can become calloused to the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin in our life. Yeah, we can do that. But Paul wasn't doing that. Because to do that is to drift farther and farther away 
from God. You see, if we truly love Jesus, we will want to obey him. And the more we love him, the more we will want to live for him. And the more that we want to live for him, the more sickened we will be, the more grieved we will be over the sin in our life. And I think the faster then we will run to confession and repentance to God for the sin in our life. We will hate the fact that we want to honor Christ with our bodies. We want to live for his glory, and yet we still struggle with sin. I think that's what Paul was referring to. He did not, number one, forget who he used to be before salvation, but neither, neither did he just harden his heart, the spirit working within him. Second point we have here is the effects of Jesus' coming. Now, verse 16. But I received a mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, remember, foremost sinner, that as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. While Paul considered himself the worst of sinners, he realized that his salvation was about much more than just himself. It was about an example and a testimony of Jesus' amazing grace and mercy. It testified to the fact that Jesus' substitutionary atonement for sins, in other words, him taking our place, it is sufficient. His sacrifice paid it all. And it is free to all of us to accept that that gift of salvation. What a marvelous example that salvation is. And I think that's what Paul is referring to here. How how could it not be an example of what Jesus Christ had done in his life to save him? Again, think of this with me. Before his salvation, Paul was a terrible man to Christians. Sure, he did it out of a misguided religious zeal. He thought he was actually serving God, but Remember the things that he had done. We, we looked at verse 13 earlier. But remember, he, he was horrible. In, you don't need to turn to it. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned, Paul was the one there who was giving approval to that stoning, which was really tantamount to murder. And then just a couple of verses later in Acts chapter 8, verses 3, it says this about Paul. It says, he was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was brutal to Christians. He hated them because he thought that they were blaspheming God. But after his salvation, oh my goodness, he was so radically changed from then until the day of his death. His zeal, that zeal that had been misguided before his salvation, that zeal then was used to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's salvation, it was all because of Christ's mercy and grace. And so it was truly an example to all as to why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. Marvelous miracle of grace when anyone comes to salvation. It reminds me of the story of what happened in in South Africa. It was in the 19th century. There was a man named Afrikaner. 
And he was the chief of one of the local tribes, of the Hottentot tribe. He was a hardened man, and he was a vicious, ruthless warrior. He and his men so terrorized the people of that region that the governor of Cape Town offered a large reward for him, dead or alive. He wanted him stopped. Well, along came a young Scottish man, but not to arrest him, not to kill him. The Scottish man was a missionary. His name was Robert Moffat. And he believed that God had called him to preach the gospel message to the Hottentot people. And so rather than fleeing from them, what he did is he sought them out. He went to where they were. And wouldn't you know, amazingly, the very first convert to Christianity was none other than Afrikaner himself. This ruthless, brutal, tribal chief became a follower of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of his acceptance of Christ, the testimony of his salvation, it influenced all of the people of his tribe. Salvation is truly, truly an incredible testimony of God's grace and mercy. So, okay, so we, we, we can see that about Paul. Man, the life he lived, what he did before his salvation was horrible. We can see that about Africaner, what he had done ruthless, brutalizing of people. And so when they were saved, wow, it was a great display of Jesus' perfect patience and gift of eternal life. But what about us? What about you? What about me? We're not famous. Our testimony will probably never be read about or heard about by great numbers of people. So what about our salvation? Compared to Paul, an Africaner, I mean, wow. Ah, see, that's also the incredible example of God's grace. No less so than it was for Paul or for this Africaner. Because, you see, we are all saved in exactly the same way We are all sinful people, unable to do anything to help ourselves spiritually. We are unable to do anything to gain God's favor, to earn salvation. Our salvation is entirely, 100% completely dependent upon Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. And it is only received by us by faith. Not that we do anything to earn it, to deserve it. It is by faith. It is a gift of God that he has given to us. And so our salvation is no less, no less an example of Jesus' mercy and grace than Paul's was. I say to you this. Don't ever let yourself think. Don't ever let yourself be convinced by anyone else. Don't ever let yourself listen to the lies of Satan and to think that somehow your salvation is less special or significant to God than anyone else's. Do not think for one moment that your salvation is any less effective of a testimony of the saving, incredible grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
Do not think for one moment that your salvation is any less noteworthy than anyone else's. Because our salvation is not just about ourselves. It is an example of what Jesus Christ did. It is an example of his mercy. It is an example of his patience with us. It is an example of his grace. That is the miracle of Christmas. You see, every person's salvation is a shining example of the power of the gospel to change a sinner into a child of God. Every person's salvation brings glory to God. That is amazing. Which leads us into Paul's last point. The doxology of Jesus is coming. Look at verse 17 with me. Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) This is so cool. It's like, as Paul reflects on what we just saw there, how he was saved by Jesus' grace and mercy, as he realized that here he was, he called himself the foremost of sinners. But as he reflected on the salvation and all that Jesus brought to him, it's like he just breaks into this wonderful, almost spontaneous doxology of praise. It's, it's like you read it through here and reading in the context, it's like he just couldn't control himself. It just came out. He thought about what Jesus Christ did for him, and it just burst out of him into this glorious praise. And then he ends with the word amen. We use amen all the time, but that doesn't just mean it's like the end of a prayer. Amen means truly. It means, it means so it is. It means let it be so. so. I love this. He just, all of a sudden, this praise just comes out of him. Amen. Let it be so. In fact, this is so, I think, kind of humorous, but it's really cool. Because Paul, he still couldn't control himself. So he's writing more to Timothy And then it happens again. Go over to chapter 6 with me. (laughs) I love this. Chapter 6, down to verse 14. As he nears the end of the book, he's writing there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14. He's talking about, he sets the tone for us with Christ. He says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He just can't help it. The more he reflects on what Jesus Christ did for him, it just, it's like it erupts from him, this doxology of praise. Like, yes, Paul, yes, keep going. And I hope that that is what it's like for us. He could not keep silent in praise of Jesus when he thought about what Jesus did for him. Thinking about his salvation through Christ, thinking about the one who came into the world to save sinners, of which Paul thought he was the chief of, it just brought about this spontaneous outburst of worship and adoration. I love that. 
I don't know about you, but I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by that. So I have just two questions I want to close with, two questions to consider. A, have you accepted Jesus' incredible gift of salvation? Have you? Christmas is about Christ coming into the world to save sinners, of which all of us are. If you have not done that, oh, I beg of you, don't even leave the building this morning without doing so. That is the reason he came in the, to the world. The reason we have Christmas, the reason is because he came to save us. And he offers this incredible gift freely to us that we just accept by faith. Second question I have is this. For all of you who are saved, what does your salvation mean to you? If you're like me, it's so easy to just sometimes start to take it for granted. To just, yeah, I'm saved, I'm good, I know where I'm going to go after I die, and kind of leave it there. But that's not nearly enough. I pray instead that we will not take it for granted, but we, instead we will be like Paul. Oh, I so want that. I want that this time of season, especially as we reflect on the trustworthy and the thrilling saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I hope that it will evoke such a passionate declaration and expression of Christ's majesty within us that we cannot remain silent. Paul couldn't help himself. I want to be like that. I want to, every time I think about my salvation, just to start praising and worshiping Jesus Christ because of what he has done. I hope that that's what we will do. I hope we will no longer be silent, that we'll no longer be able to keep it in. And I say this, quoting the Apostle Paul, to our glorious King Jesus, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what Christmas is. Let's pray. Jesus, oh, help us just love you with every part of us. We think about what you have done for us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would not take for granted our salvation. Instead, let us celebrate by worshiping you. And Lord, if there is anyone here who has not yet accepted you as Lord and Savior, help them understand the importance of that decision. Help them to understand that every one of us can only be saved by Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray in the quietness of this moment, you might even move in their hearts now that silently they can just pray to you. Jesus, I believe. I believe that you came to die for me. I believe that your death is sufficient. I know I am a sinner. I know I need to be forgiven. And Jesus, I believe in you to do that. So Jesus, save me now. I commit my life to you 
as I freely accept the amazing gift that you offer me because you came into the world to save sinners. Thank you. Oh, Father God, please touch our hearts with the Christmas story. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen.